Well, if you haven't already turned in your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis 13. You may have noticed on the sermon card that I'm trying to do the miraculous today. I'm trying to cover three and a half chapters in the book of Genesis. Once I prepared for the sermon, I realized that was akin to parting the Red Sea, but I'm not Moses, and so I'm not sure I can do it. But we'll get through as much as we can as we walk through the text. But first, let us consider where we've been in the book of Genesis. We've seen that God has existed from eternity past. That in the beginning, he was there. That he created the whole world and that at the pinnacle of his creation was man and woman, Adam and Eve. Made in God's image to be in fellowship with God. But we saw that the story took a turn for the worse in chapter 3, where man and wife rebelled. They turned away from God. They decided they wanted to be their own gods. They wanted to make their own rules. And now every single human is born into sin, is by nature sinful, and is inclined to sin all the days of their lives. We see that Cain murdered Abel. All the wickedness of the earth is swallowed by a flood. Noah, the righteous one, who is spared drowning, becomes a drunk. The new generation, they attempt to save themselves by building a tower so high that they could reach the heavens on their own. And we see that evil is the inclination of everyone's hearts. We've seen a vivid illustration of Romans 3, where Paul says there's none righteous, not even one. No one does good. No one seeks after God. So what hope do we have? If we've sinned against the one creator God of the universe who is loving, holy, and just, it means that we deserve death, infinite judgment. What hope do we then have to move from death to life? Well, that's the question the rest of the Bible answers. And starting in Genesis 12, we begin to see a little clarity to that answer. We've already seen that God's going to bring a rescuer through a family. He's going to carry on the promise of a rescuer that he alludes to in Genesis chapter 3 through a series of patriarchs. A patriarch is a man through whom a new way of life comes. Through a patriarch, a new family comes, a new nation comes, a new movement and community of people come from him. And the first patriarch in Genesis is a man named Abraham. Now God comes to Abraham when he's 75 years old. He's settled in the world-class city of Haran. He's living there with his barren wife and they're worshiping the moon gods. And God ushers a radical call to him. I mean, there's Abraham, no kids. He's an idol worshiper. There's nothing good about Abraham. There's nothing on his CV that would set him apart from anyone else. But God comes to him. And says, go, leave, get out, leave your land, leave your home, leave your stuff, and go to a land that I will show you. And he went. He had a radical faith to trust God. The journey to the promised land was underway and things are going pretty well. But then last week we saw a radical fall. That same Abraham who displayed radical faith floundered. You could call it a patriarchal flop. Abraham faced Pharaoh. And he had a choice. 
Was he going to fear God or was he going to fear man? Would he trust in God and the promises unseen? No, instead of leaning on God and his promises, he lies to Pharaoh. He tells him that Sarah isn't his wife, but his sister, and he almost loses her. He was willing to sacrifice his wife in order to survive. Our man with radical faith falls in order to preserve his own life. We were challenged with the question, do we do what's right in the face of immense pain and trouble and trust God? Or do we do what's right in our own eyes and try to help ourselves? Do we fear man? Or do we fear God? Well, Abraham feared man and fails. Yet we see there and throughout the rest of scripture that God's rescue plan is not thwarted. By God's grace alone, hope remains for Abraham and Sarah and the rest of mankind. And today we'll see this continue. We'll continue our look at this patriarch by looking at the life of Abraham and his relationship with Lot. We'll see that like Abraham in his encounter with Pharaoh, Lot lives not by faith, but by sight. Lot is enamored by what he sees, by what's in front of him, about what could be, and he forgets about what is. He forgets about what God has done and and about what God has promised to do. Is this a problem for us here in Dubai? Can we as a people get distracted by the lie of Dubai that we forget God? Can we be allured by the bright lights of more money, more cars, more prestige, more comfort so that our hearts slowly get dulled to the things of God? Is it a risk that we start living not by faith, but by sight and what this world can give to us? You bet. This is a risk for me. This is a risk for you. It's a risk for all of us. Our passage will address this today. And I have one main point this morning. If you're taking notes, just one point. It's this. Walking by sight leads to destruction, while walking by faith leads to joy. Let me repeat that. Walking by sight leads to destruction, while walking by faith leads to joy. Let's take a look at how Lot walks by sight. Let's begin reading chapter 13 in verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock, At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? 
separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Let's stop there for a little bit. Lot was Abraham's nephew and he went with Abraham from the land of Haran. They were traveling as nomads and they got more and more wealthy. Now when nomads get wealthy, their bank accounts don't get bigger. They aren't saving durhams. They get some gold and silver, but ultimately what happens is they get more and more livestock. Their entourage grows. They have more tents, more hired shepherds, more animals, more employees. Their entire operation increases. And both Abraham and Lot's fortunes, they grow. And they come to a time in verse 6 that they're maxed out. It's too crowded. There's no more room for more tents. No more room for more workers. Their financial net worth was stalled. Unless something happened, they couldn't get richer. They couldn't accumulate more animals, more tents, more employees if they stayed together on that piece of land. So Abraham gives Lot a choice. You can go to the right. You can go to the left. It's probably standing there in an elevation close to Bethel. It was a thousand meters above sea level. There was a magnificent view of the Jordan Valley from there as the Jordan River meets the Dead Sea. And Lot lifts his eyes. And he sees paradise. The idea of lifting up his eyes and seeing shows that he took it all in. It's green. It's fertile. It's well watered. And Lot said, that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to go there. Because it's the best place for him to continue to get richer. Now this is a problem. Because when the eastern boundary of Canaan, the promised land, is identified, it is typically the Jordan River. So it becomes clear that by moving to the vicinity of the cities of the plain, the Lot has slowly gone to the border and then outside of the promised land. Leaving the entire promised land to Abraham. First he goes to the edge and eventually he'll dwell completely outside of Canaan. You see in verse 12 that Lot and his household occupied the land as far as Sodom. Outside the promised land. And one pastor has said Lot was the kind of man who would certainly choose heaven over hell. But not heaven over earth. Material prosperity was his bottom line. John Calvin explains Lot fancied he was dwelling in paradise, but he was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. Walking by sight leads to destruction, while walking by faith leads to joy. Lot chooses to walk by sight. He's an ambitious man. We can see why he's ambitious. Money and financial prosperity are more important to him. It's more important to him than sticking with the promises of God. Now, of course, to be honest, God's promise does seem a bit odd, right? Leave your homeland, walk to some land that I will show you one day. 
Now, it's great that Lot is with Abraham there in the beginning. It's a good start. He's made a good choice. He likes his uncle, but business is business. He puts his financial growth ahead of his relationship to God and his promises. He does what's best for him. He lives according to his sight. An Old Testament commentator named Robert Alter says something very interesting about verse 10. He says you have to realize... When you read verse 10, it's not a description of the Jordan plain in the voice of the narrator. He says, grammatically speaking, when it says Lot lifted up his eyes and he looked, what we're getting is the way Lot's heart is interpreting what he sees. It says Lot looked up and saw the whole plain of the Jordan well watered. And here's the key. Like the garden of the Lord. So it's not some sort of side comment. The garden of the Lord would have been referring to the garden of Eden. He would have seen the beauty and wanted it. But Alter says that Lot wasn't just trying to get rich to have money for money's sake, but he was trying to get back to the place where he was perfectly valued. He's trying to get back to a place of ultimate significance. Now, if Alter's commentary is true, then there's more going on here than just money. When we live by sight and cling to the promises of marriage or money or kids or career or prestige or reputation or anything else, there's always a greater heart idol going on. There's always something deeper beneath the surface. It's not all about money. It's about significance. We want to feel important. We want to feel valued. We want want people to think highly about ourselves. We want people to look up to us. In all honesty, we're not that different than Lot, are we? Lot wants the garden of the Lord without the Lord. You see, when you're chasing after these things, it's never enough. Lot was already wealthy. He and Abraham had so much livestock that it was overcrowded. It's never enough. To satisfy your heart with riches is like pouring coffee down a funnel onto the floor. That funnel is never going to be full. Your heart is never going to be fully satisfied by the things of this world. Now, friend, is this you? Maybe you've lived in Dubai for one week or 30 years. Friend, is this you? Are you yearning for a garden without God? Are you looking for paradise here on earth? If you are, friend, you're chasing after the wind. King Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. And whenever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. But then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is King Solomon who had everything. 
Friends, walking by sight leads to destruction, while walking by faith leads to joy. Derek Kidner says that Lot chooses what is seen, and in that found them to be corrupt and insecure. Choosing selfishly, he was to grow ever more isolated and unloved. Lot thinks if he can just have the best land, if he can just have the best home, the best situation, that everything will be okay. But there's still conflict. You must surrender your heart to God. That's the only thing that will create peace. Peace is not secured by creating the perfect environment. Even in the ideal environment of Eden, sin originated. We can never put ourselves in the ideal place where our hearts will be filled with the things of this world. Only a heart that wholly leans on God will create peace. Let's continue and read the rest of chapter 13. Starting in verse 14 and see what happens next. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if, that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. God takes him, God takes Abraham up to look at the promised land. At this place between Bethel and Ai, there's a spectacular lookout. It's high up there and from that spot you can see everything. God brought him up and said, this is it. Abram, this is it. This is the land, and I will give all of it to you. Though this man would fail time and time again, God always keeps his promises. Now, how can he do this in the midst of failure? Well, because there's another man who this text points to. Centuries later, the ultimate son of Abraham lived and walked on this earth. He was the rescuer and deliverer promised in Genesis chapter 3. In the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came one who faced temptation on a mountaintop. Sarah said, or Satan in that moment, Satan said to Jesus, Jesus, look out. Look out at all this land. Look out and see all that's there. I'll give it all to you if you'll just worship me. Sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? Pastor Tim Keller points out that when Satan took Jesus to the top of the mountain and said, all these things I'll give to you, there's great irony in that statement. The things he was offering Jesus were already Jesus's by his right. Here's what the temptation was. He says, I can give you all these things without renunciation. Jesus, I'll give you all these things without suffering. Jesus, I'll give you all these things without you going to the cross. You don't need to do any of that. I'll give it all to you. And Jesus said, no, I came to lose the Father's face. I came to lose my authority. I came to lose my glory. I came to lose everything. And here's what's so intriguing about this. God takes Abraham up and says, these things are not yours by right, but I'm going to give them to you. Satan takes Jesus up and says, these things are yours by right. And Jesus refuses them. 
And the reason you and I can be taken up to that mountaintop along with Abraham and God can say, I'll give you all this, is because Jesus Christ lost it. You could have it because it was lost for us. Or to put it another way, Abraham points us to Jesus because Abraham let go of wealth so that he could be in a loving relationship with God. He let go of what he could see place his faith in God. And then Jesus Christ gave up the ultimate wealth so that we could have a relationship with God. 2 Corinthians 8 is where it says, Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The truth is, you can't have that kind of satisfaction and contentment apart from Christ. It's not possible. In fact, the Bible says that looking for satisfaction apart from Christ leads to death and judgment. That's the essence of sin. It's looking to the things of this world for our satisfaction instead of the things of God. It's walking by sight. And the Bible says walking by sight is rebellion. And if we continue to proceed that way in putting ourselves ahead of God as the king of our lives, it leads to separation from God in eternal torment and suffering and judgment. But Abraham points to one who has come to take away our sins. Jesus lived a perfect life, came from heaven down to earth, lived perfectly every step of the way, every day from morning to night for his entire life. He walked in step with God in perfect obedience. And then he marched to the cross and died the death that we deserved. He was the atoning sacrifice for sin and our only hope. Oh friend, repent from walking by sight. Repent from, li- for, for, from living for yourselves. Repent from being the God of your life and place your faith in Christ today. The Bible is clear that the only way to be saved is to turn from your sin, to turn to God and to believe in Jesus to save you. My friend, I would urge you to do that today. To acknowledge that you've been living like Lot and to turn to God. When you turn to Christ, you'll understand that walking by sight leads to destruction while walking by faith leads to true joy. Lot was seeking liberation and significance and satisfaction. Again, Lot's choice was by sight alone. It was the biggest mistake of his life. And many of us are following that same path. Some of us are in situations at work that dishonor God, but you haven't quit because you don't know where your daily bread's going to come from. At work, they're teaching you to lie. They're teaching you to cheat. They're even rewarding you for behaving corruptly and making shady business deals, forging documents, doing immoral activity. And you're daily making choices that dishonor God just to keep your job, just to make more money, just to keep your visa. And you're walking by sight. Oh, friend, walk by faith and not by sight. Some of us are fearful to give joyfully and generously to the church because it makes us nervous to give more than just our leftovers and extra to God. We think that if we follow the Spirit's leading, we won't have enough for ourselves and for the life that we want to live. Oh, friend, walk by faith and not by sight. Some of us are in seasons like university or entering our career And we're picking majors and studies based on our earning potential or based on the prestige we think we'll get with that certain job rather than looking at our career as a way to serve God and ministry. Friend, walk by faith 
and not by sight. Jesus left the ultimate wealth of heaven for a time so you could have the ultimate wealth of heaven forever. Friend, walk by faith and not by sight. And only when we know that because Jesus died, we have everything we need by the grace of God, only then will we treat money and earthly treasure differently. Only then will we seek to be a giver rather than the one who covets what he doesn't have. Cultivating a giving heart isn't something you just fall into one day. It's something that you must cultivate. It's something that must grow in your heart over time. One of my favorite stories of seeing this play out in my own life was during my final year at seminary. I was there studying theology with Gloria. We were married for a couple of years, and we were going through a difficult time financially. We were, we were all out of money, and we had a big lump sum payment for our theological studies that we didn't expect to have to pay. And our first child, Eliza, was, was due, and many unexpected medical expenses came up with that. And we were just out of money, and we were pretty despondent and discouraged about it. And one day, Gloria is just sitting there in her seminary class, and she just broke down crying. Just right there in the class, professors teaching, number of students all around her. And, and I'm not talking about the cute kind of crying. You know what I'm talking about? The kind of, you just got that one kind of cute tear that kind of rolls down someone's cheek. It's kind of cute. This is ugly tears. There's a torrent of tears just going down Gloria's face. She was weeping and even wailing. And so she actually packed up her stuff and excused her from class right in the middle of the class and left. And she just starts walking through campus and across the street towards our, our flat. Now, where our seminary was situated in the city was quite a dangerous place. The campus police actually requested that women don't cross the street and walk around at night by themselves. So this was daytime, so Gloria's thinking, well, this is, this is fine, it's, it's okay. She's just, just weeping and, and wailing, walking across the parking lot towards the street. And in the corner of her eye, through the flood of tears, she notices this man just running to her. Just running after her, and she thinks there for a minute, well, fine, I'm going to get mugged, I'm going to get robbed, and I don't even have any money to give him. Just a stack of unpaid bills in her hands, which she actually had. But the man ran up to Gloria. Instead of stealing her purse, he just wrapped his arms around her. And Gloria thought, well, this is the nicest burglar in the world. (laughs) He gets hugs before he steals your money. (laughs) He's a strange man, mysterious man who called himself Al, just... Put his arms around my wife. And he asked urgently, are you okay? Are you all right? Gloria just in her tears, everything's fine, everything's okay. And he just persisted persisted and said, no, really, what's wrong? And Gloria just said, "It's, it's our money. We don't have any money. We can't pay for tuition. We can't pay for this baby. And he just said, Gloria, just trust God. He'll provide for you somehow. And then he said, what's... Your mailbox number. I want to help you. So Gloria gave, a, gave him our number. And then she came home. I was there in the apartment. And Gloria's the crying. Still those ugly tears. The torrent of tears. And she came up to me and started telling me the story. And I started saying, well, wait, what happened? You got mugged? Wait, you didn't get mugged? Wait, the burglar gave us money? I don't quite understand what's going on here. But the next morning, there's snow everywhere. The campus was closed. Even the post office was closed. But we went anyway. We just checked our mailbox. You could get access to the mailbox. And in our mailbox was a check that covered all the rest of our tuition. And even more. God doesn't always provide that way. God's certainly not a cosmic vending machine. But he did provide in that instance. We thought about this mysterious man named Al from time to time. And 
We just wondered, did this man just get generous in that moment? What triggered it? While the decision to give might have seemed totally spontaneous, his heart was prepared for generosity because his treasure was in Jesus Christ. In his glory, it was in Christ. It was in faith in Christ, not by his sight. He was walking by faith. And while walking by faith, he was willing to help us at whatever the cost was. He was ready. He was prepared to give. Now, walking by sight leads to destruction. While walking by faith, to be generous with your money. To be generous with your time, to be generous with your energy, to be generous with your talents, to be generous even on the spot right there in the moment. To be like Al who has cultivated a heart of giving and not coveting, who's cultivated a heart of walking by faith and just trusting the Lord and whatever he has promised to us. No lot couldn't part with the income he could get and it leads to destruction. No, things are not looking good for this man And now we're going to see in chapter 14, there's going to be war now. He thinks he's there in the gates of Sodom, just kind of hanging out, doing his own thing, enjoying paradise, enjoying the well-watered valley, just kind of on his own there. But now we're going to see that he can't escape God. He can't escape man. He can't escape evil. He can't escape anything. And we're going to see a war. And Lot's caught right in the middle of it. Look there at chapter 14. Let me read beginning in verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasser, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Barak, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Shavakiria Thame, and the Horites in their hill country of Sire, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishphat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. And the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Now, I think it's good to be humble, but I think I should get some kind of pastoral award for saying all those names. (laughs) That's a lot of kings. Took a lot of practice for me to do that in preparation. Gloria was a very patient wife, as I said, Cheddar Laomer dozens of times last night. But let me summarize what's going on, on here. We can easily get to portions of scripture like this, where we just see name after name after name and just kind of gloss over it, right? Just kind of read chapter 14 and you just kind of say, well, I guess there's some kings and I guess there's some fighting. But there's more to it. Let me 
kind of talk it through. We know all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is profitable. So we don't gloss over the names, but we seek to understand what God is doing here. So let me just give you a summary of what's happening here. The city of Sodom was part of a pentapolis. It's a group of five cities that were connected. Each of the five cities had their own king. They were located at the southern end of the Dead Sea. And for 12 years, for some reason, they had paid tribute to those four kings in the east. They were making yearly payments to them as tributaries. And the five kings, they finally, after a dozen years, they get tired of it. They're tired of paying tribute and they want it out. And so tension erupts as these five kings, they join together in war. They go to try to suppress and overthrow the four kings. But it doesn't go so well. You notice as I read that the rebels are taken out and the five kings, including the king of Sodom, are suppressed and driven out. They're conquered. Everything is taken. Everything is taken as a way to punish the rebels. These five tribes had nowhere to go. They were on the run and had no way to defend themselves, nowhere to hide. Many of them met a terrible death as they fell into the black ooze of the tar pits as they fled. Still today, asphalt oozes in heavy liquid liquid form in the southern part of the sea. And falling into one of them would have been a terrible way to die. But it got worse. Verse 12, they took all the plunder. And then it says they kidnapped Lot and his possessions. Everything Lot had acquired and all the wealth he had collected were now taken away. There were clear consequences to his choice of land. It was ironic. The best land by sight had proven to be the worst land in reality. I wonder what was going through Lot's mind as everything he had worked so hard to collect was being carted off. Perhaps even right there before his own eyes. I wonder what his sight was telling him in that moment. There's always consequences for hoping in earthly treasures. Walking by sight leads to destruction, while walking by faith leads to joy. But in God's grace, Abraham comes to the rescue. Look at verse 13 and following. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So, So word gets back to Abraham, and he gets to work. Now remember, this man is 75 years old. At 75 years old, many people are retired. They, they're enjoying taking a little bit of a break. At that point in life, if I'm 75 years old, I think I'd want to maybe get some rest, lay back in my hammock on the beach under a palm tree. You know, have a good pomegranate juice in my hand and bury all my worries there in the sand and just kind of relax. You know, just kind of kind of stay put. And Abraham could have held a grudge against Lot, right? I mean, hey, Lot, I told you so. I told you so. I I told you that that land was bad. That's not the promised land. But not 
not not Abram, not this man here. He's going to war. He goes on a 150 kilometer ride to the scene of the battle. Takes 318 men with him. And remarkably, with only 318 men, he defeats these tyrants. He rescues Lot. He even brings back the possessions. But what's most fascinating is the interaction at the end of the chapter. There's not really any celebration. There's not really any description of Abraham's great fighting skills. Those 318 men aren't giving each other high fives, congratulating each other. No. What's most fascinating is this interaction starting in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young man have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshel, and Mamre take their share. This is a remarkable scene. After Abraham's victory, two kings come up to him. The king of Salem saw the victory as a divine accomplishment, whereas the king of Sodom saw the victory as work done by human hands. The king of Salem offered encouragement and pronounces an unspecified blessing. He dwells on the giver, not the gift, but all the king of Sodom cares about is getting some of his stuff back. He starts off with the word give. Abram there being... The conquering hero was entitled to a share from the property plundered from the king of Sodom. And so the king is he's trying to work a deal. But Abraham has no sh- wants no share of what the pagan king offers him. Whereas Lot makes a decision earlier to go for the money. Abraham here gives everything back to the king of Sodom. So that no one would say the king of Sodom made him rich. He surrendered his rights. In fact, we see that Abraham actually gives a portion of that. To the king of Salem, he gives a portion of tithe. Well, one question that begs our attention is, who is this king of Salem named Melchizedek? And there's no easy answer, but let's see what we know about him in the text. The name Salem was short for Jerusalem. He was the king of that part of Canaan, the part that would become the holy city. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness or my king is righteous. The point is that His name stresses righteous character. And in addition to his royalty and righteousness, multiple times our passage tells us that he was also a priest of the Most High God. Add to this the fact that he was a Canaanite, and you have the reality that Melchizedek was the God-fearing Canaanite priest king of Jerusalem. He is both a priest and a king. Salem means peace, and so he was a king and priest who brings peace. Some say this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself, a Christophany. Others say that it's a type of Christ, a picture of Jesus we can understand in retrospect. 
Well, either way, Psalm 110, Hebrews 5, and Hebrews 7 talk about the priestly order of Melchizedek, and it's important. You might sit down later on today and read each of those passages. Psalm 110, Hebrews 5, Hebrews 7. Let me read some of what Hebrews 7 says about this priest. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now it's interesting that in our story of Genesis, Abraham has this remarkable victory, but what's important to the author isn't that, it's in Abraham's interaction with this priest. There's no mention of the origin or death of Melchizedek. He has no genealogy. Unlike the Aaronic priests for whom Levitical descent was essential to hold the office, the order of Melchizedek is a wholly different kind. He points us to Christ. To another one who would come later who was both priest and king. To the ultimate king of kings and the ultimate high priest who would take away sin. This priest himself would not offer a sacrifice, but would himself be the sacrifice for sin. Unlike the other high priest, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. Doesn't need to offer sacrifices for his own sin and then for the sins of the people. No, this priest offers a sacrifice for sin once for all. Jesus is the one who's greater than Abraham. And the one who is both priest and king in the order of Melchizedek. Now the tithe Abraham gives acknowledges that the Lord was the victor in the battle. And Abraham there gives and worships. In contrast to the king of Sodom. And in contrast to Lot who is worried about getting more and more. Friends, let this be a warning for us. It's interesting that as far as we know, Lot was never guilty of any serious theological error. In fact, Peter, in 2 Peter, says Lot was righteous. And according to the rest of the Bible, Lot was a Christian. Lot was a follower of God. But there are some serious issues here. There are some serious consequences to sin. By the end... Lot lives in Sodom. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. Now, 25 years later, a couple, couple decades have gone by. A generation has gone by. And we see there in verse 1 of chapter 19 that the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. He's not on the outskirts. He's right in. 25 years later and Lot still doesn't have a clue. He could have come to the promised land, but not only is he outside of it, he's inside of it, and he's at the gate. The city gate would have been where important decision-making happened, where business transactions took place. We see that Lot is entrenched in this place. He's in the, the middle there of Sodom. But here's something incredible. Let me, let me just read to you from Second Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. And if he rescued righteous Lot... 
greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he, meaning Lot, was, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now Lot was a Christian, and he was even tormented over the sin in Sodom. But he never left. Never got out. This guy knows what's right. The guy knows what's wrong. But he stays outside the promised land. And soon everything's going to fall out. Everything is going to fall apart. Later in chapter 19, we see that he loses his wife in judgment. Both his daughters fall into perversion. We see that Lot's last recorded act is an act of incest. Now take some time later on today as well and read through Genesis chapter 19 on your own. And you'll see that it is a chapter of utter judgment. Eventually Lot loses every dollar he ever made. He loses everything that's important to him. And it all started with his decision to depart from Abraham and leave the promised land. He never stopped seeking to gain significance from the world. He was conflicted. He knew it. He was tormented by it. But he never left. Now read through those verses and see how walking by sight always leads to destruction. Oh, Christian, can this happen to you? Is this happening to you? Do you know what's right, but you just won't do it? Do you know that you should leave your job? Do you know that you should stop stealing and cheating? Or stop committing adultery? Or stop an immoral dating relationship? Or stop living in the midst of wickedness and sin? Do you know those things? Friend, do you feel even the conviction of sin in your heart right now? Do you know it? And yet, you won't stop. Yet you won't get out of Sodom. Yet you won't go to God. Yet you won't walk by faith. Instead, you just cling to what you see and you think that'll give you satisfaction and fulfillment. Oh, friend, I urge you, watch your life and look to Christ. Look to him and get out. Have faith that God will care for you. Walking by sight always, always leads to destruction, while walking by faith always leads to joy. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we pray that as a people here in Dubai, we would walk by faith and not by sight. That our hope would be found in Jesus Christ alone for all things. That we would not get sidetracked or distracted by the things of this world, but we would be enamored with Jesus. Father, help us to follow you in our jobs, in our marriages, in our engagements, in our parenting. Father, help us to be true to you in our ministry, in our day-to-day activities. Would our hope be in what is unseen? Would our hope be in this world to come, to the place where our citizenship exists? Would we live for that day and for that place by faith? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to respond, as we always do, to the preaching of his word by song. And I just want to draw your attention to the first verse that we'll sing in this next song, We Belong to the Day. It says, We belong to the day, to the day that is to come. 
When the night falls away and our Savior will return, for the glory of the King is in our hearts. On that day, we will be seen for what we are. Well, friends, as we consider the lyrics of this song, just remember, we weren't made for this world. We were made for the next. Citizens of heaven, living now for the world to come. Well, let's now sing together. Please stand and join me as we sing.